Reading uh, from Matthew 28, verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things, teaching all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I feel a little bad for Jared um, this morning because we have spent all this time working our way through Matthew. Uh, if you've been with us from the beginning, it's been, I think, probably about a year and a half. We started uh, January of 2010, if that's right. Slowly working our way through this whole gospel. And you do all this work, preach all these sermons for all this time. And then when it comes to the last one, to wrap up everything that we've done, you're not able to be here to finish. And I'm going to brag on him a little bit, because I think that speaks a little bit to his humility. If that was me, I'd have said, no way, buddy. You preach on something else. I've done all this work. I'm finishing this thing up. I'm wrapping this up, and I'm going to take care of it. But he he didn't, so I, I'm hoping that's some humility on his part. I'm bragging on him a little bit. Um, but he he asked me to, to fill in this morning um, to wrap up Matthew. Um, so while part of me feels a little bit bad for him, another part of me feels excited, because this is one of those passages that I run across that every now and then, I think you you run across something that speaks to you maybe just a little bit more. It has a little bit more oomph to it, and it gets you excited. It gets you a little bit more pumped up, get your blood going a little bit more. And this, for me, is one of those passages. When we, when we talk about uh, the Great Commission, uh, this is one of those things that gets me excited and gets me fired up. So I'm glad that he's asked me to finish that because I'm excited to work our way through this last little bit of Matthew. Um, I don't know how many of you have ever had a chance to do any sailing. Um, I've only been a couple of times, once a uh, long time ago, working my way through a merit badge for Boy Scouts. And they got me on a little sailboat, and we did whatever it was required of us to do for us to get that merit badge. Merit badge. That was a long time ago. Um, and then a couple of years ago, um, Coleman and I took this little sailboat that's been given to us, and we took it out on Bringle Lake. And I'm not sure that what we were doing you would actually call sailing, uh, but we had to sail up. And we were able to kind of maneuver around and, and make our way around out there. Um, we had enough wind. Uh, we didn't stay out there too long because we thought we saw one of the alligators that supposedly live out there. And it's like, hey, I'm getting off. You know, you don't want your sailboat capsizing when there's alligators moving around. So we got off. So I don't know much. You know, I've only been a couple times and don't know a whole lot. But I do know that there are some basics that you have to have in place if you're going to do any sailing. You know, for starters, you got to have some wind. Uh, you can have the greatest sailboat in the world. Uh, you can have your sails out. You can have everything rigged. You can have it crewed by people who know exactly what they're doing. If you have no wind, you're not moving. You're not going anywhere. Okay? So you've got to have some means of propulsion. You've got to have some wind. Secondly, you've got to have a sail. You've got to have some kind of material stretched out where you're, you've got a big enough surface area that you're catching the wind. Uh, you're harnessing that, and it's, it's propelling you forward. Um, so you've got to have wind, you've got to have sails. You can have all the wind in the world if you have no, if you have no material to catch that. If you have no sail, you're still not moving. Okay? You're still going nowhere. Um, you've got to be able to steer. You've got to have this, this little stick called a pillar that's attached to this piece that goes down in the water called a rudder. 
And if you've got those and you're working those in combination with the sails and with the wind, now you can you can go somewhere. You can maneuver. Uh, if you've got no uh, tiller, if you don't have a, a tiller or a rudder, if you have no means of steering, then you either you either drop your sails and you sit there, or you're at the mercy of the wind. If you have sails that are capturing the wind and you have no means of steering, then you're just driven along by whatever the prevailing winds are. You're carried about. And there's probably some other basic things. But the last basic thing that I could think of that you need if you're going to do some sailing is you have to have a means of navigating. You've got to have a, some kind of fixed point out there, maybe land on the horizon that is fixed that you're figuring your direction by. Um, or you've got to have a compass that's pointing north, giving you a fixed direction so that you can determine which way you're going. If you're sailing at night, you don't have your compass and there aren't any clouds out, you look for a north star. You look for this fixed point that's a reference, something that gives you focus, something that focuses your activity and gives you a means of determining your direction so that you can actually go somewhere. You've got to have all four of these to actually be able to successfully take a sailboat from point A to point B. And I think for us, for the church, I think as a whole, uh, far too long and for, in far too many different places, um, we have forgotten what our North Star is. We have forgotten what we are to be about in our time that God has given us on this earth as a church. And the passage that we look at today gets me excited because this, I think, in its various forms, gives us our direction. It gives us our purpose. It gives us what we are to be aiming at. If you've got a sailboat with all these things, except for a direction and a purpose, you can have a lot of motion, you can have a lot of activity, you can have a lot of noise, people can be running around looking busy, but for what purpose? What's the point? And for us as a church, we can be busy with a lot of things. There can be a lot of motion going on. There can be a lot of activity. We can be busy, but to what end? And I think the passage that we look at today as we wrap up Matthew gives us our end. It gives us our purpose. So let's look at it. Matthew 28, verse 16. We've got a lot of themes. If you had the study guide from this week, you notice there's a lot of themes that we've looked at in Matthew that come, kind of get drawn up and wrapped up in this, in this passage. Things like authority, things like worship, the deity of Christ, discipleship, the nations, etc. There's several things that Matthew, I think, gives us kind of this perfect ending uh, to his gospel by wrapping up all these different things and bringing them together and tying them up together. Um, if you're a note taker, if you want an easy way to, to outline this and remember it, uh, you could put um, claim and you can, and then out, under, underneath that you can put command and comfort. Or you can put claim and commission and comfort because we're looking at this claim that Jesus makes about himself, this command that he has given us to go out into the world and make disciples, and then a comfort that he is with us always to the end of the age. So that's an easy way to just kind of remember that. Claim and comfort and command. Or claim and commission. So starting in verse 16, it says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Remember from a couple of weeks ago, we've looked how Jesus had said, uh, after I'm raised up, 
We'll go, we'll go to Galilee, the angel. Last week we looked at uh, when the women had come to the tomb and were looking for Jesus. Uh, the angel directs the women to go and tell his disciples to go to Galilee and meet them there. So they go, they meet uh, Jesus in Galilee on this mountain. Um, and then verse 17 says, when they saw him, they worshipped him. This is one of those themes that we see in Matthew, this idea of worship. The wise men, the very beginning of the gospel, they come and worship him as a baby. A little later on, Satan, when he's tempting him in the wilderness, Satan tempts Jesus to worship him. And Jesus responds that worship is reserved for God alone. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. When Jesus, a little later on, he calms the sea, the disciples look at him and they worship him and they say, truly, this is the Son of God. Truly, you are the Son of God. They worship. And then last week, how we saw that when Jesus appeared to the women after his resurrection, they fall down, they take a hold of his feet, and they worship him. And so his disciples, when they see him, when he comes to meet them, they worship him. And you've got to think, for, for Jewish, these Jewish guys who know their Ten Commandments, who know that worship is reserved for one, that worship is reserved for God alone, for them to bow and worship who would appear as a mere man, their thinking is this is no mere man. He is divine. This is God. Okay? So we see worship. We see some uh, a Matthew working into Christ's deity in here. They worship him. And you might say, people could say, well, they're out of their minds. They're crazy. They don't realize you know, that who they're bowing down before is just simply a mere man, except for the fact of how Jesus responds. He doesn't rebuke their worship. You can look throughout Scripture, when, when men bow down, when they see an angel, and they bow down as if to worship that angel. Or if you think about Paul, I think it was maybe Silas that was with them. Uh, they're out on a missionary journey, and people think that they are the gods, come down from heaven, and they're ready to sacrifice them, and, and Paul rebukes them. And we're only men. We're, and, and angels rebuke men. They were only creatures. We don't worship us. And yet these men worship Christ, and he receives that. He does not rebuke that. Um, it's a claim of his deity. He's receiving this worship. He's not rebuking that. And so right off the bat, as you end Matthew, think back to the question in Matthew 16, who do people say that I am? You get to the end of Matthew's gospel, and you have a decision to make. You see people worshiping him. You'll see him make this claim in a moment. It is absolutely crazy for anybody other than God to make. And you have a decision. As you get to the end of Matthew's Gospel, who do you say Jesus is? Will you bow before him as his disciples did and worship him as Lord and Savior? Or will you reject him? Don't try to push off this idea that he's just a good teacher. He's just a, a great moral teacher kind of deal. Um, Great moral teachers don't go around making the kind of claims about themselves that this guy made about himself. So you got to answer that question. Who do you say Jesus is? And what are you going to do? Okay. Verse 17, though, says, When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Uh, that's, I think, a really important point. Um, for one, it gives us some evidence that Matthew, we can believe Matthew's words, because if you're writing this, and you're trying to convince people that this is true, you don't do what Matthew did last week in looking at how prominent women, a woman's testimony is 
uh, in trying to show, trying to bring this news to people. In those days, a woman's testimony was, was not admissible. It wasn't legal. And so if you're Matthew and you're, and you're writing something that you want people to believe, you don't include that. And you don't include people who doubt. Alright? That's a, that's for us today. I mean, it's like, why would you even, why would you even believe that? But he's including that because it's true. They saw him, some worshiped, but some doubted. Now, some people think maybe there's more than just the 11 here. You know, Paul speaks about Jesus appearing to more than 500. And some people think maybe that was part of his appearing to 500. Maybe some of them doubted. Um, it could be natural that if this is the first time that they have seen Jesus uh, since he came back from the dead, it could be natural that some of them are just going, look, is this really him? Is this really him? So I don't know exactly what we do. I mean, it's not real clear about who's doubting. Uh, it's not necessarily clear about what exactly they're doubting. But I think it's in, one of the things that we can walk away from with that is knowing that these guys weren't gullible. I mean, sometimes you'll hear, well, the disciples, they were just gullible. They just believed anything about this guy. They weren't gullible. They needed some proof. They needed some reason. And we see that. Um, and the fact that Matthew includes it is evidence that what he's writing is true because you don't just put that in if you're making something up. All right. So some worship, or they worship, but some doubted. And then in verse 18, he makes an incredible statement. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So we got to ask, what is this authority? And what does it mean that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus? And that is an astounding claim. All authority in heaven and on earth. That's absolute. That is a claim to absolute rule and power and authority. Now, we've seen before where the crowds, when he would teach, they recognized that he taught not as one of the scribes, but as one who had authority. And Jesus himself has claimed that he had the authority to forgive sin. He could heal people, but he also had the authority to send them away forgiven. That's reserved for God. Um, we've seen how when he sent the disciples out, he gave them authority to cast out demons and to heal. We've seen this idea of authority before, but it seems like it's heightened right here because he's claiming all authority. Daniel, chapter 7, uh, verses 13 and 14, it says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is what Jesus is claiming for himself. All authority, that's, that's God talk. Okay, That's something reserved for God alone, and yet Jesus is claiming this for himself. Listen to this statement uh, from John Piper. I love this. He says, all authority. He has authority over Satan and all demons, over all angels, good and evil, over the natural universe, natural objects and laws and forces, stars, galaxies, planets, meteorites, authority over all weather systems, winds, rains, lightning, thunder, hurricanes, tornadoes, monsoons, typhoons, cyclones, authority over all their effects, tidal waves, floods, fires, authority over all molecular and atomic reality, atoms, electrons, protons, neutrons, undiscovered subatomic particles, quantum physics, genetic structures, DNA, chromosomes, 
authority over all plants and animals, great and small, whales and redwoods, giant squid and giant oaks, all fish, all wild beasts, all invisible animals and plants, bacteria, viruses, parasites, germs, authority over all the parts and functions of the human body, every beat of the heart, every breath of the diaphragm, every electrical jump across a million synapses in our brains, authority over all nations and governments, congresses and legislatures and presidents and kings and premiers and courts, authority over all armies and weapons and bombs and terrorists, authority over all industry and business and finance and currency, authority over all entertainment and amusement and leisure and media, over all education and research and science and discovery, authority over all crime and violence, authority over all families and neighborhoods and over the church and over every soul and every moment of every life that has been or ever will be here. All authority. You don't make that kind of claim unless you know that you are God. There is only one who possesses that kind of authority, only one who possesses this absolute authority and rule over all creation, over all the universe. And that's God alone. So this is absolute crazy talk for someone to make that kind of claim if they're merely a man. So again, we're forced to answer who do you say what do you do with this Jesus? Uh, is he Lord over all? If you just try to dismiss him again as some great teacher, either you're not being honest about what he is claiming for himself, or you're just flat unwilling to deal with his claim. So we come back again to Matthew 15. Who do you say he is? What do you do with him? So we see authority. Uh, we see his claim. And then he gives us a command. In verse 18. Verse 19, I'm sorry. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Go therefore and make disciples. If you've been around any time with the Bible, you know you've heard this called the Great Commission. People have referred to it as our Great Omission because we have missed uh, what we are supposed to be doing by and large. So Jesus is charging his disciples here to make disciples. He's authorizing them. He just got through saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, so you, therefore, go. He has given them the proper authority to make disciples. For us to go into the world to make disciples, there's nothing illogical about that. There's nothing illegal about that in God's economy. There's nothing abnormal. These are our orders. These are our, this is our mission. And it's not just Matthew. That, that gives us this great commission. You see it in the other Gospels. Mark 16. Jesus said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the Gospel to the whole creation. Luke 24. Repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. In John 20, at the end, He says, As the Father has sent me, even so I send you. Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul talks about us being ambassadors for Christ, that we are his representatives, that God is making his appeal to the world through us. Think about an ambassador. 
They don't, they, they go to a country that is not their own. And they represent the country that sent them out. We are citizens of heaven. This world, it's not our country. It's not our home. Scripture calls us strangers and aliens and sojourners. We're here for a time. And for our time, we are charged with being his representative, with being his ambassador, for representing his interests of what we are here in this world. And we are given the charge to make disciples. Second Timothy 2 2. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. It's not just for their generation. You see, Paul teaching Timothy, who was to find faithful men who would be able to teach others. It's meant to go and go and go. It's meant for all of us. Jesus would say to the end of the age. So it's not just for those 11 disciples. It's for us as a church, as a whole, to take this mission and to make disciples. This is, above, this is what, above all else, we are to do. This is our reference point. We talked about having a North Star, about having a focus. This is it. This is what we are to continually be about. When I was a student uh, at Texas A&M, involved in the Campus Crusade, we had a t-shirt that said, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Right? Real easy. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Our main thing is to glorify God and make disciples. Our main thing is to keep disciple-making and glorifying God the main thing. Everything else is periphery. It may have a place, may have a use, but it is subservient to this main task of glorifying God and making disciples. This is what we do. This is our main thing, what we should be about continually. Um, make disciples. In this verse, it's the main command. Um, going, baptizing, teaching. If you remember anything about grammar, probably hated grammar. Grammar is important. You want to be a good student of the Bible, if you want to understand Scripture at a basic level, you've got to remember a little bit of grammar, like nouns and verbs and adjectives, participles. These are participles, going and baptizing teaching. They support uh, this main verb, main command of make disciples. Okay, so we're going to look at going and baptizing and teaching. First thing we got to look at, is he's saying make disciples, you have to ask the question, what's a disciple? What does that look like? What's a disciple supposed to be? I think here, a disciple is one who is a learner. Okay? It's someone who follows someone else. It's someone who imitates someone else's way of life. It's someone who has a personal relationship with and a devotion to the one that they are following. A disciple in Scripture is someone who has looked at what it's going to cost them to follow Jesus, and they realize they're going in with eyes wide open and they know this may cost me financially. It may cost me a job. It may cost me persecution. It may cost me trials. But they look at what they stand to gain and they're like Paul. They say, we don't look at our present sufferings as anything even comparable to an eternal glory that we inherit. So they look at the cost. They look at what they stand again, and they're saying, yeah, we're willing to pay that cost. They've weighed it out, and they're saying, I'm paying the cost, and I'm following Jesus. No matter what it may cost me now, because of what I know I stand to inherit now and for eternity. 
So it's someone, again, with eyes wide open, they've evaluated that, and they're saying, I'm committed, I'm following this guy. All right? It's someone who, we said a while ago, who imitates. You think about, if you've got children, think about when they're little. They tend to say and do what they see you say and do. Sometimes that's good. Sometimes some things come out of their mouth that aren't so good because of what they've heard you say. And they do things maybe sometimes they shouldn't do because they've seen you do it. They learn by watching and imitating and doing. That's what a disciple does. He looks at Jesus' life. He looks at other followers of Christ. And he imitates that. Paul would say, imitate me. As I imitate Christ, you imitate me. One of the things we got to come to grips with in our own life, do we have a life that can be imitated? Am I even around people? Am I just hold up here on Sunday or in my house or at work, my office, never really interacting with anybody? Do I even have a life that can be imitated? Is it worthy to be imitated? Paul would say, though, imitate me. As I follow Christ, as I imitate him, you imitate me. The disciple is one who imitates, who learns by doing and following, who's devoted to Jesus. He has weighed out the cost. And he says, I'm willing to pay that because I see what I stand against. And we move into that eyes wide open. That's a disciple. Now, as, as far as these, these participles that we talked about, going and baptizing and teaching, um, some say go here in the beginning. Since it's a participle, it ought to be translated something like, as you are going, or as you have gone, as you go, make disciples. Um, some people say it has the force of a command because it's right there with make disciples, so it should be go and make disciples. Either way, I mean, I kind of lean towards the thing of as you are going, uh, as you go through life, make disciples. Either way you go, the main idea here is that we are to be intentional in our disciple-making. Whether that's as we're going, we're intentional about interacting with people and seeing how God would use us to bring them to faith, to help them grow. Or we, we take the initiative and we go. We find somewhere in mind that we want to go, we want to reach people, and, that, and we go. Either way, the idea is that there is an intent, there is a purpose. We're moving with intention to make disciples. Uh, big difference, I think, between Judaism and Christianity. Judaism, then, is not necessarily a missionary religion like Christianity. Judaism was willing for people to come. We'll build a temple. We see our law. We want to attract people would come. Um, Christianity, I think, on the other hand, Following Christ, people can and should be attracted uh, to our doctrine. They should see a purity of life in us that is, that is attractive. They should see us when we're out in the world, the way we conduct ourselves with the world, the way we speak, the way we act, the work that we do in our workplace. They should see that and be attracted to that. And that should be a means of us being able to engage people with the claims of Christ. So there should be that attraction. But for us, the primary emphasis is not on waiting for people to be attracted and come to us. The primary emphasis is on us to go, to make disciples. When we do this, all we're doing, again, is we're imitating our Savior. John chapter 1. 
It says the true light, verse 9, the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. And then again in verse 11, he says he came to his own. In verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And again in Philippians chapter 2, it says Jesus was in the form of God, but he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born. He came into this world and would emulate him by going and interacting with the world. Go and make disciples. You've seen his authority. You've heard him say, go and make disciples. But then there's this phrase, make disciples of all nations. We've got to ask, what are the nations? What does that mean? If you think way back to Genesis, um, God made a covenant, covenant with Abraham. Genesis chapter 12. In verse 3, God is telling Abraham, I will bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. He's, he's promising Abraham, in Genesis 12, that all the nations will be blessed through you. And then in Acts 8, as we saw earlier, that you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, all nations. So we go to a world proclaiming the gospel of this Savior who is a descendant of Abraham. So that, as Galatians 3 tells us, this promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So sometimes the nation, that means sometimes we go to places like Ecuador, or to Kenya, or to Chile, as we heard from Rebecca last week, of going to places like China, or Uzbekistan, or Mexico, or Russia, or wherever, all over parts of the earth. But for most of us, for most of our life, our nations, our mission field, is right here. It's right here where God has sent us. It's Texarkana, or Hooks, or down in Falk, or up in Ashdown, you know, or even Ogden. You know, that can be a mission too. We need the gospel in Ogden too. Uh, it's right here. These, this area, these areas, these are our nations. This is where God has sent us. This is where we are to go and make disciples. We may send and we may pray for and may support people who go out to different parts of the world, and we should. We should have a heart for the entire world. But we're not to do that at the expense of here. We are here. And we are to focus on here making disciples of the people that we interact with here. Okay? So, just some practical things. Like, what about your neighbors? You know, for those, for those of us, some of us live out in the country, we're a long way from anybody, but some of, a lot of us, most of us live in town. And we got people on either side and behind and across the street. When was the last time you talked to your neighbors? You even know them. Do you have any kind of, of interaction with people that are right around you? What about coworkers? You know, maybe maybe you got a job that's just not a whole lot of interaction uh, with other people. But if you're like me, I got people that I'm interacting with all day long. What am I doing? What are we doing with these people that are around us all the time? Those are our nations. 
Those are our nations to go and make disciples of, to engage people. I'm not, I do, I, I'm not like, I can stand up here and, and talk because it's not dialogue. I don't have to worry about you talking back. Um, but I don't do well, you know, when there's a big group, like big church lobby, I'm kind of walking around the wall. You know, it's like, I don't do dialogue real well all the time. Uh, and so this is a weak area for me. This is something that I have to grow in, something that I have to trust God in and step out in faith in, to actually like make real contact with real people, okay, that I work around, and ask them, how are you doing? How's life going? I mean, a lot of times I'll ask someone, hey, how's it going? No, it's okay. And I just kind of pass on. I don't ever come back and go, well, what's up? Well, tell me about it. I don't use that as an opportunity to begin to see how things are going and to see how Christ speaks to that situation. To see how I can engage people. There's lots of people that you probably engage with or come into contact with uh, on a daily basis. As you go to the mall, as you go to Target, as you go to Home Depot, as you go out to eat, as you go get your oil changed, go to some of the same places all the time. Be consistent. Because you start to you start to see some of the same people all the time. Use that. Go to Starbucks and talk to the people that are taking your order. You do that over time and you get to, there's a point of contact there where you can talk with people and who knows where that leads. To be able to share the gospel. And make the gospel. These are our nations. Our neighbors, our co-workers, the stores we go to, this area that we live in. This area, these are our nations to go and make this entrepreneur. Baptizing. I'm not going to spend a long time. I mean, there's a lot of different parts of this passage that we could spend a ton of time on. But he says, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We could look at the Trinity. We could look at the deity of, the, of Christ and Holy Spirit there. Baptism, I think, at the, the basic idea here that I think we want to get across is we're to bring someone to a public confession of their sin their repentance, and of Christ as their rightful Savior and Lord. We're to bring them onto a public profession of their faith in His provision for their sin. They're being initiated publicly into a life of repentance and submission to Christ as their Lord. They're standing up in front of people publicly and they're saying that they are breaking with the world. They're breaking with their old way of life. They're being brought into union with this triune God. And they intend to devote their life to Him. This is the starting point for discipleship. By repenting and believing the gospel and by publicly declaring that and baptizing. You're identifying yourself with the Savior and with His people. So there's a lot more that we could go on uh, in saying about that. But I think that's the main idea that we want to look at with this, as far as baptism goes. Um, but it's not just going, it's not just baptizing. You see teaching. You see instruction. There's two things here. It's teaching them all that I've commanded. You look at all that he said in the Gospels. You look at what he would say in John, of how he would make a promise that he would send the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, who would, who would guide these disciples into all the truth. He would bring to their remembrance things that he had said. And if you look at who wrote the rest of the New Testament, it's largely apostles or it is people who had a close association with an apostle, with one of these twelve, one of these eleven, or Paul. 
He would guide them. There's a promise that He would guide them into that truth. So all that He commanded isn't limited to just the words in red in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Okay? It goes way beyond that. But you're teaching them. You're instructing people in all that Jesus commanded. But it's not just that. It's teaching them to obey all that He commanded. We could sit around and we could have a lot of classes. We could have a lot of instruction. We could put a lot of data into your head. You could be someone who has mastered all this scriptural data. And you could say, say dialogue all day long about doctrine, about all sorts of stuff that is necessary and has a place. But if you're not obeying, you're not being a disciple. If we're not producing people who know what Jesus has commanded and are obeying that, are walking in that, are taking the words of Christ and putting them into practice, we are not making disciples. We might have attenders, but we don't have disciples because disciples follow and they obey. They are devoted. They submit. That's what we're aiming for. A people who would make people, reproduce people, help people grow into lives that not don't they don't they don't just know what Jesus has said. They do it. They carry that out. And then last, he says in verse twenty also, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Behold, pay attention. Look at this. Listen. Don't forget what I'm about to say. I am with you always to the end of the age. You've seen a claim. You've seen a command. This is our comfort. We go out with the authority and the strength of the risen Christ. We go out with a comfort. We know that He will strengthen us. We know that He will comfort us. We need that because it's going to be hard. If you try to go and make disciples, there are obstacles. There are trials. There are temptations that we've thrown up in our way. There's a world that if it hated Jesus, it's going to hate us too. We need a comforter. He says, I am with you always. There's, I will never leave you or forsake you. Hebrews 13. There's no end to his presence with us. Always look at that and take comfort in that and be strengthened by that. That's our means of propulsion. If you think back to our analogy earlier, I am with you. And he says, to the end of the age. We looked at in our study of Matthew where he talked about the end of the age uh, and the end of the world, these things that would come about uh, when the end of the age would come. He says, I am with you to the end of the age. As long as this world exists, as it does right now, we are still to be about the task of making disciples. It didn't die out with that first generation of apostles. It didn't die out with the early church, or it shouldn't die out, maybe I should say. This is still our task. As long as the age is still around, this is still our main thing, to make disciples. And quite frankly, uh, and I'm talking to myself too, we don't do this very well. We 
church as a whole, not the churches in particular, do not do this. We're like that sailboat. It's got a crew that knows what they're doing. And they've got wind. And they have a means of steering. But they have forgotten what they're aiming at. And so there's lots of activity, there's lots of motion, there's lots of noise, everyone's busy, but to no purpose. If you remember, uh, if you think back, read through the trellis and the vine. What does the trellis represent? Remember that? Kind of the structure, the things like church buildings and management and committees and finances and building campaigns and events and youth programs and whatever else you know, we think is necessary for keeping the church going. And the authors will argue that while we need some trellis I mean, to support a healthy growing vine, you need some structure. But our task, our focus, is not on growing the trellis. It's not on making sure that that trellis looks better than anybody else's. It's not on making sure that that trellis is bigger than anybody else's. Our task, our focus, is to grow the vine, to preach the gospel, to make disciples, to grow them. And as that grows, we may need to support the trellis a little bit more. We may, to, may need to add to it some. You know, if God adds to our numbers here, at some point, you know, we won't be able to fit in the gym, maybe, or, or in the cafeteria. We'll, we'll need somewhere else to meet. You know, there's, a, there's some level of structure that is necessary, but our, our focus is not on that structure. Our focus is on growing the vine, on gospel growth. Not on Church growth. And people will say, I'm sure you got this question. I've been coming here for any amount of time. People will say, well, how's it going over there? You guys growing? Growing. We know what that means. They're not asking, are, you, are your people growing in holiness? Are they growing in, in purity of doctrine and in purity of life? Are they growing in their love for God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength? And are they growing in their affection and their love for their neighbor as their self? Are they growing in their obedience? Are they growing in their in their practice of what Jesus has commanded? The question is, how many people are coming? That's what they're getting at. Numbers. Because we get so caught up in numbers. It's easy to measure. You don't make a quick buck trying to make disciples. It's slow and it's hard. It's not flashy. We talked about the mission field last week not being this romantic uh jazzy kind of thing that you go out and do. It's hard work. And making disciples is hard work. It's a lot easier to focus on programs and putting stuff in place so that we look busy. And we're trying to grow our budget. We got about five hundred coming on Sundays. Or we got about a thousand, you know, coming in our just to our second service. I don't want to go a thousand what? Thousand what? Zero times a thousand is still zero. Do you have a thousand attenders? Or do you have a thousand disciples? And a thousand disciple makers? It's a big difference. Okay? So while some structure, some trellis is necessary, our task, our focus is on making disciples. Again, I think the church, by and large, has not done this well. It's a parachurch group, if you want to be honest. 
who have done a better job of keeping the focus on this main thing. Things like Campus Crusades and Navigators and InterVarsity and other uh, college ministries. Missions groups. Um, Crusade's mission, when I was involved with Crusade as a student and then on staff afterwards, the mission was to fulfill the Great Commission by winning people to Christ, building them in their faith, and sending them out into the world to do the same. Win, build, send. It's real easy, real simple, real focused. Okay? And they, they would talk about, uh, they focused on evangelism and discipleship and spiritual multiplication. They would talk about he could be the greatest evangelist in the world. You could bring a thousand people a day to Christ. And it would only take you six million years to reach the whole world. And then they would talk about how if you take a year of your life to invest in five people of just teaching basic stuff and nurture them and grow them, disciple them, train them. And at the end of that year, each of them take five people. And then all of them take five people and so on and so on. You know, I want to take something like 13 years to reach the whole world. When you're young and idealistic and you're in college, you don't have money or anything else to do. That's a, that's a good sounding deal. All right. And there's some issues with that. But the overarching deal was they gave me a vision for how God could use me in the lives of people and how he could use me to help people grow and walk with him. How he could use me to train other people. I mean, I could take someone and teach them basic Bible, basic doctrine. I could teach them basic skills of how to share their faith and how to lead a small group. And then I could send them out. Send them out to do the same. We reproduce. Most churches that were churches of mules, not horses. You know the difference? The main difference? What, what can a mule not do that a horse can? Reproduce. You can't make baby a mule can't make baby mules. Okay. Horses reproduce. We're wanting to be horses. Right? Campus Crusade could make me into a horse. And most of our churches are filled with mules. We work hard. We can, man, we can work hard. But what are we accomplishing? Are we just busy with a lot of noise? Or are we accomplishing the task, the mission that he has given us of making disciples? That's what we want to be as this church. A group of people who obeys this great commission to bring people to faith in Christ, to grow them in their faith, to make disciples. So what does this all look like? You know, if, we, if we do this, what does it all look like in the end? Revelation chapter 5 says, Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe, every language, every people, every nation. Who will there be from this area standing there 
that we have had an impact in their lives. To grow them, to bring them to faith, to grow them as a disciple of Christ. Who will be around that throne, the part of that multitude, crying out in praise and honor and glory our Savior? Because God has used us in their lives. That's what I want in our end. It's about people. We can have great buildings and lots of programs and get distracted from the main fact that it is about people. And relationships with people. Okay. Father, we've looked at a lot. There's a lot there this morning. A lot more time that could be spent in looking at different aspects of this passage. I pray above all else that you would remind us of how central this task is for us. That this is our focus. To glorify you and to be used by you in bringing people to faith in yourself and growing them as disciples. Keep always in our minds that it is about people. That we would be setting ourselves about you and your word and the souls of men. I pray, Father, that we would be the body that would take this seriously. And that we would help fulfill this great commission. I pray, Father, for your blessing on us. I pray for Jared and Anna. They are away this week. We pray that you would use them in moving believers a little further down the line in their discipleship and their growth and their love for you. We pray that you would watch over them and bring them back to you. We pray that you would give us eyes to actually see the people that we interact with and to remind us that this area, these people are our nations. Give us compassion and a fire to go to them and love them. To be gentle with them and kind and truthful and compassionate, but firm with the truth. Pray, Father, that you would glorify yourself to them. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.